I want to start with reading from scripture. I'm going to be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 4. And I'm going to bounce around in the verses a little bit. Um, I'm going to be reading from verse 1 to 40, but kind of bouncing through the verses. So here, beginning in verse 1. 
Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do this in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the people who will hear these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Only give heed to yourselves and keep your soul diligently, so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. But make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. Remember the day you stood before the Lord at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on earth, and that they may teach their children. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments, that you might perform them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord, your God, which he made with you when you, he made, when you made graven images. In the, do not make for yourself graven images in the form of anything against that which the Lord has commanded you. For the Lord, your God, is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, your God, as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the people and you will be left low in number, few in number, among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither do smell, hear, nor eat. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord, your God, and listen to his voice. When you are in for the Lord, your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant he made with your fathers when he swore to them. Out of the heavens, he let you hear his voice to discipline you on earth. He let you see his great fire. And hear his words from the midst of that fire. Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he brought you personally from Egypt by his great power, driving them out before you, nations mightier than you, to bring you in and give you the land for an inheritance as it is today. Know therefore today, and take it to heart, that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I am giving you today, that it may go, go well with you and go well with your children after you, and that you may live long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. And then one more verse I want to read you is out of the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 128. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. 
When you shall eat the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall be the man who is man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion, and that you may see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, you may see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So in both of those texts, we read how important it was not only to know the word of God, but also to listen to it. And also to teach it to future generations. That Israel, all throughout their law, was commanded to teach these things to future generations. That way you may be a blessed people. That way you may prosper in the land the Lord was giving you. Today I'm going to share just a bit, some small details, how I believe we can find some godly influence in our family lives. Just as Israel was commanded to find the godly influence in their family. For the past couple weeks we've been going through a sermon series I have titled Life Together. Borrowing a phrase from the thoughts of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his book by that name. The goal of this sermon series, Life Together, has been to help us find godly influence in different relationship contexts. Be that church life, family life, dating and marriage, friendships, and we'll go back to church life and see how that all has to do with it all together. Church life should be leaking into all the facets of your outside of church life, if we'll call it that. So I opened this series sharing details on how our life together as Christians should never be taken for granted. There is and should be an intention and expectation in all that we do. When we come together, there's an intention and there's an expectation. Prayerfully, you're married. There's an intention, there's an expectation. When we have friendships, which we'll be talking about next week, you're going to see there's an intention and there's an expectation from those friendships. So what we're asking ourselves this morning is, well, what is God's intention with the family And what are the expectations for godly influence in our families? So last week, I I sought to detail how singleness, dating, and marriage are relationships where we can find Christian fellowship, we can find Christian mission, and we can find agape love. Perfectly, those of you that are married or in dating relationships can find all of those things. You can find that fellowship that is like none other. You can find that mission, that there's a mission for God to be glorified through your marriage. And then ultimately, prayerfully, you and your mate have an agape love, a, self, a, self, a not self-seeking love for one another. A selfless love would be the right way to say that. So I detailed Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship simply means that your coming together is marked different than the other versions of coming together. For example, when we come together in and through Jesus Christ, we understand that that means Jesus is the head. This is not a democracy. This is not a matter of each and every person's opinion in this room and how we can best see the church walking worthy. No, we desire to know how Jesus wants the church to walk worthy. So we believe that that is found also in your marriage, in your dating, in your friendships, in your family, that there's a way that God desires. This is not just let's figure out how we want to live together. No, how does God want the family to look? What does God expect from each and every family? And when I say family, I'm not only talking about the nuclear family of mother, father, son, or children. I'm talking about the extended family, your entire family. Whether you're just, you're a couple that is married, that is your family. Whether you are, you know, um, the son of your mother and you spend most of your time in that context, that's your family. Um, Whether, you know, you spend time with your brothers and sisters more often than your parents, that is your family. Um, Again, there's a larger facet than just the nuclear family that I'm touching on when I'm talking about family. I'm asking, what is our role when we're talking, when I'm dealing with my mother? What should be my role in that family context? What is a mother to her son? What should be the, fa- the, 
the role that that mother should have to her son? What is God saying in these different family contexts? And that's what we're going to get to the heart of this morning. In reading about Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, namely because his birthday was at the beginning of this month, and I just feel that we need to kind of hold up good standard to what a Christian life would look like. So as I've been going through and mining some of his resources on life together, um, again, I believe he's well worth our attention in this regard, I found some interesting details about his life. In Dietrich Bonhoeffer's family, they honored the extended family. It wasn't just about the home, the mother, father, and the children. It was about their extended family. This allowed for each family member to not only know and feel the immediate love of their nuclear family, they also felt a part of a bigger picture, a bigger story, a family, a legacy that was being lived through their family. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this to his nephew. The cosmopolitan culture of the middle class tradition represented by your mother's home has created in those who inherit it a proud awareness of being called to a high responsibility in public service intellectual achievement and leadership, and a deep-rooted obligation to be guardians of a great historical heritage and intellectual tradition. This will endow you, even before you are aware of it, with a way of thinking and acting that you can never lose without being untrue to yourself. So I read that to you to challenge you this morning. When you look at your family story, when you look at the picture of where you are in your family, what is the legacy that you're leading? Or if you find yourself as a leader within your family, maybe somebody that other people are kind of following after, maybe you might ask yourself, what legacy am I leading? Those that come after me, my children, or my mother, or my father, or whoever looks at my life, what would they say my influence in this family is? What are you instigating in your family context? And that's what I want to challenge us with this morning, because I believe, very simply, that God creates families to influence each other. You might say, and actually many people have said this before, that the family is the first seminary for a believer. The family is where you're going to learn true belief. And if you're a husband and wife that are married and you spend most of your time in that family context, how are you encouraging each other? What's the legacy of your marriage? What's the legacy of your home life? What does it look like? What are you encouraging in one another? And I believe there's a challenge for each and every one of us in this room to figure out where do I stand in my family context? What am I, when people look at my family, what are they saying my influence in that family is? That's what I want to challenge us with this morning. When we talk about family, again, I'm not talking about the nuclear family. just want to make that very clear. Beth Gee, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's closest friend, made the comment that the rich world of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's ancestors, his family, set the standard for his life. It gave him a certainty of judgment and manner that could not be acquired in one single generation. You see, your family tells a story, an ancestral story, pretty much what you're reading here about Israel, their ancestral story. Your family tells a story as well. And what's important for us is to understand, in the midst of my family's story, am I telling the Christian story? When my family looks at my influence, do they say, Mike is the Christian in our family that is leading us to understand the things of the Lord? Or, for example, to borrow our uh, Sunday school message that we're learning, would your family say that you are one of the wise people in the midst of the family, one of the wise counselors that are there to give your family some wisdom in regards to the things of God? Again, we need to be thinking about this because if the family is the original seminary, the first seminary of a believer, then we want to have that seminary being done in order. We want to make sure we're truly producing the things of God in our family. Allowing a family legacy to lead us is important. Carl and Paula, Bonhoeffer's parents, would have never dreamed of neglecting the model to model and teach basic values to their children. Many parents today are hesitant. You hear this in our culture today. 
They are hesitant to impose their values, their religious beliefs, their understandings of life on their children because they don't want to force them to be religious. All the while, what that does on the other side is it leads your children to wander aimlessly through life, not knowing what the direction is, what's the cause, what's the goal of my life. In Bonhoeffer family, in Bonhoeffer's family, there were basic values that were simply a part of the way the family operated. You had to be, have integrity. You had to have clarity of thought. One of the things I admire about Bonhoeffer's father is that at the kitchen table, they wouldn't just mumble trite things. They wouldn't just say things without thinking. Their table talk was full of thinking and then responding. Talk, thinking about what you're going to say and making sure that your words are filled with thought, that they're not just you just mumbling things and throwing them out. Control your tongue, as the book of James encourages us. So what Bonhoeffer's dad would tell him is don't, don't speak before thinking about what you're going to say. They also had kindness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's mother nurtured kindness in their family, creativity, most of all faith and imagination. A home where they regarded mistakes as more forgivable than boredom. And dishonesty and fibbing were severely punished in comparison to broken windows and torn clothes hardly counted. Again, catch that. They said that mistakes are more forgivable than boredom. If you were bored in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's home, I imagine his dad being a teacher of psychiatry would come around and say, well, there's plenty of things to learn. There's no need to be bored. There's so much out there to understand and learn and think about in our world. So you shouldn't be just sitting there wasting your time. He would encourage him to fill his time with things of value, things of substance. And then dishonesty and fibbing were severely punished, severely punished. However, broken windows and torn clothes... They let those go. Those things weren't that important. What are the important things in your home? What are the true standards, the values of your family life? From his mother, Dietrich learned that a faith was deep, personal, and foundational to all of life. The Lutheran church played little role in Bonhoeffer's upbringing. It was almost completely irrelevant in Germany, aside from the religious ceremonies of infant baptism and confirmation. The distinction between faith and church must have contributed to Bonhoeffer's later idea of a religionless Christianity, that it should have a substance. It shouldn't just be about religious ceremonies and details. No, there needed to be substance in the Christian church. From his father, he learned the value of having deep integrity rather than passing on thoughts, thoughtless with familiar cliches. Most of Dietrich's later ideas, still shocking to readers today, result from his strong commitment to speaking truth that comes from his father. Also, his father would tell him to forsake tradition. So much of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's reading of scripture and being undimmed by church tradition comes from his father's wisdom. I don't believe it would come as a surprise to any of us that in our culture today, we seem to have lost the art of godly families. The other day, while sitting in my car, in our community right here, good old Blue Point, I had the opportunity of listening to a woman get cursed out by her children for over a half hour. Just sitting there listening in my car, saying, wow, that's godly families for you. That's what we're raising up, a generation of a 7-year-old and a 10-year-old. Couldn't have been no older than that, saying words that I don't even say in my worst moments. So you would imagine I begin to say, wow, I need to have a message for this week if I'm going to be preaching about family. Again, you could go on YouTube. You could actually watch YouTube videos of children beating, physically abusing their parents on the Internet. This is the stuff that our culture is passing off. These are the things that are acceptable somehow in our culture. And I look at your faces and I, I see some of you saying, what in the world has happened to our culture? We think that's okay. 
we might wonder what parents are teaching their children. You, you look at the world, sometimes you probably meet some kids and you say, do you learn anything at home? You know, what is going on? And then we lament the fact that our, we send our children to college, right, in our culture. You send your children to college and they come home atheists, knowing more than you in many worldly things, but having no foundation in spiritual things. And then I look at the homes. I say, well, what are we teaching people at home? Is the home a seminary? Are we keeping it that where in our homes we're allowing our faith, that what we come here to express as a true body of Christ, are we allowing that to be manifest in our home? That's the goal. I want it to come from here, but I also want it to come from your home into here. You see, there's two things that need to happen. When you leave here, you should be taking the spiritual things that we learn in the Christian community home, but then also you should be blessing us here in the spiritual community with the things that you're doing at home. There should be a vice versa. I'm constantly looking around at the way of the world and wondering how they see this as living life. It's one of my constant conundrums in my mind. I just look at people's lives and I say, that's life? Doing what? What exactly are we doing? What is the purpose of our life? I don't have the ability to simply ignore you know, what's going on in our culture, the children cursing at their moms and say, oh, it's a sign of the end times. You know, Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 2 tells us that. I don't have that privilege. I have to look and I say, no. No, this isn't a sign of the end times that we can just be okay with because, after all, God said it was going to happen. No. I look and I say, we're doing something wrong. We have not figured out this life together principle. Or what does it mean to have godly families? Have we just said, we'll leave the religious stuff to church and forget about it at home? Sometimes I wonder that. Maybe that's a problem. Maybe we're not really putting our all into creating a, a study at our home. For example, I think of the shillings who hold a Bible study at home, allowing the word to come into their home. There's a, every Thursday you can know that the Bible's there, being talked about, being said, and I imagine all of their family know that. That's the type of things we need in our home. We need to make sure people know that our home is the epicenter of our spirituality, that it's not something I do at church. No, it's something that's alive and well in my home. On the front of your bulletin it says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Not as for me and my church. We know that. I know that your church will serve the Lord. I'm asking you, what about your home? And that's what we need to be asking the world around us as Christians. What about your home? Don't come to church and try to be spiritual at church. No, no, no. You know what? Stay home. Bring the spirituality there. Because that's how we're going to fix homes. I don't believe by bringing those bratty children to church that we would have fixed them here. I believe it would have began at home. It's going to begin there. So I believe the right thing for us to ask ourselves and one another And most of all, our God is, what do we do when we watch the foundations of godly living, Christian families, Christian church, Christian friendships, Christian marriages and relationships? What do we do when we watch the foundations fall around us? What do we say? Do we give up? Do we cash in? Do we call it the end times and say, well, I guess this is God. Blame him. What do we do? As I thought about this and I prayed through my sermon, I thought of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, remember, they're told to rebuild the wall. The wall has been broken. The foundations have been broken. And most of the people around Nehemiah said, that that doesn't make much sense to do that. It's impossible. You're not going to be able to do it. And we know that if God's behind you, nothing is impossible. So I look at families today and I listen to my friends and they say, there's no hope. I mean, really, look at the family. I mean, watch the YouTube videos. What do we do? I say, no, if God's behind this, then we can fix families. But it's going to take diligence. It's going to take the same thing they needed in Nehemiah's time. In Nehemiah's time, it said that they had a faith beyond anything. They said, you know what? 
I understand that we have a lot of enemies, a lot of people that are going to keep us back from doing it the right way, but we're going to set our mind to the task. We're going to take up our sword. One of the things that really stood out to me was they had their sword in one hand and they had the hammer in the other. In other words, they were willing to do the work to build up godly families, but they also recognized that there was a battle. And there is a battle in our culture. We see it, a culture saying, we know better than the Christian church. We know better than God. My ways are, you know, you have families raising families the way they want to raise their families. Their way is the right way. I'm not going to force religion on my children. I'm not going to force my values on my children. I'm not going to tell my children what to do, pretty much is what I get out of it. Okay, good. So your children don't know what to do because you're not telling them. Nobody's telling them anything. And you see how foreign that is from the biblical concept. I read you two passages this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and Deuteronomy chapter, I'm sorry, Psalm chapter 128. You see in both of those passages, teach your children. How blessed you are if you teach your children. If you're a godly man and you're teaching your children godly principles, your children are going to look like olive plants. Again, I know that's foreign to our culture. But your children are going to look like olive plants around your table. Again, beauty. You know, purposeful. Your families are going to be led by God. If we're doing these things, if we're building up godly people and we're valuing our lives together. So I say all of that, and I'm going to sum up my message with... The important thing that we need to be thinking about is are we making use of the resources that we have to build up our homes as Christian seminaries, you might say. You know, for example, there's a host of things out there. I might ask all of you, do you do devotions in your home? It's the first thing you need. You want to create a good example for a godly home? Begin doing devotions in your home. Find time, an hour and a half, just set aside some time to just simply go through devotions. I found this book, John Maxwell has... Your weekly family time with God literally has 52 different lessons in this book for you to go through with your family with God. I might thank somebody here from the church for putting this in the library. Thank you. Um, So uh, I thought this was a valuable book. I read through this and said, wow, this actually has four to five pages for every day on how you could lead your family through different fellowship exercises, different ways to understand the word of God, and how you can love one another. Because again, I want to lay those three principles before you. Fellowship, mission, Agape love. In your family, who's the head of your family? You, your wife, your husband, um, God. Dare we put him at the top? If God's the head of your family, he tells you to teach, to admire, to wash your wife with the water of the word. The wife's supposed to encourage the husband, and the children are supposed to submit to their parents. So clearly, we're all supposed to be instructing one another. There's no room for, I'm not going to teach my wife how to live according to God. I'm not going to teach my husband how to live according to God. I'm not going to teach my children how to live according to God. That's a foreign concept. Our concept is, no, I'm going to do everything I can to teach my future wife how to live according to God. I'm going to do everything I can to teach myself, and hopefully she'll return it and reciprocate it and teach me how to live for the glory of God. And, of course, I'm going to demand that we teach our children how to worship God. What that means, do devotions in the home. I'm not going to leave future children to just say, oh, well, I hope they figure it out on their own. I want to bring some verses before you this morning as I close. And I believe you'll very simply figure out how we need to be living. I believe the scriptures are very clear here. Titus chapter 2 is my first text. If you're writing down, I'm going to read the verses, and you could write them down. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. It's going to be the first text. I'm just going to read through these texts quickly here. The Apostle Paul... Nope, sorry. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. The Apostle Paul here is speaking to Titus. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, be reverent in their behavior. 
not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to too much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be examples of good deeds, with purity and doctrine dignified, sound in speech which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them were disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word they may be won without a word by their behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding of the hair, wearing of gold, jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, within the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. To sum it all up, all of you are to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, Humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for that very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. I'm only going to read up to that verse there. Sorry, that's First uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Psalm chapter 103, verse 13. Just as a father has compassion on, on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. I believe that is self-evident. And then two more texts, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not external service as those who merely serve men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. So I believe the instruction is very clear in all of those passages. We see very clearly that we're all called to teach one another. In this context, the older men are to instruct the younger men. The younger men are to live as examples for the glory of God. The older women are to encourage the younger women. That way the women may live as glory to God. Fathers are to encourage their children. Mothers are to encourage their husbands. Or wives are to encourage their husbands. You see, it's all vice versa. We're all a community that living life together, there's clearly an intention and an expectation 
from our community. The famed Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said this, The Christian family was the bulwark of godliness in the days of the Puritans. But in these evil times, hundreds of families, so-called Christians, have no family worship, no restraint upon growing sons, and no wholesome instruction or discipline in the home. See how the families of many professors are dressy as godless as the children of the non-religious. How can we hope to see the kingdom of our Lord advance when his disciples do not teach the principles of God to their own sons and daughters? So I want to close with this. We need to find Christian fellowship in our family. We need to make sure that Jesus is the head of our family and that we're doing everything he instructs us to do in a family context. In Christian mission, again, prayerfully your family is displaying the glory of God, that together you can build one another up, the older teaching the younger, the younger teaching the younger, and ultimately all together you can become a beautiful building for the glory of God. And then agape love. None of this is going to work. None of it's going to make any sense unless we have a selfless love for one another, that we're encouraging one another, speaking the truth in love, rebuking, encouraging, correcting, exhorting, all for the glory of God. That's our goal, and that's what life together in a family context should look like. So I pray this week that you'll leave here and you will uh, be encouraged to begin devotions in your home, that you'll find time to, even if it's an hour and a half, to just be encouraged by bringing up and maybe be that person in your family that is bringing the Bible up. Maybe that'll be the legacy, that so-and-so is the person in our family who brings the Bible to the kitchen table. Amen? Please join me in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the godly wisdom that we read in Scripture, that we can ultimately understand what it means to grow in this context of living for you and loving you. Lord, I thank you that you give us answers, that you do not lead, lead us to wander aimlessly wondering how we should live in our families, but that you give us the wisdom through the word that we would study and show ourselves approved by rightly dividing the word and implementing these things in our lives. So, Lord, we give you the glory, and I pray for each and every one of us that we will truly see the power of this in our homes. So, Lord, we offer up our time for your glory and in worship to you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. I thank you all for being very patient with my message this morning. I just have two more things to do. I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward. We're going to collect our, morning, our missionary offering, and then we're going to end with a hymn.